I invite you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 11, page 464, 464 in the Pew Bible, continuing our series of sermons on these kings of Judah. Last week we dealt with chapter 10 and the Lord's work through Rehoboam in the early moments of his kingship. So at the end of chapter 10, the 10 northern tribes had rebelled and turned away from King Rehoboam, and then he has to flee back to Jerusalem. We pick up the story at chapter 11, verse 1. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled the house of Judah and Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the, son of God, or the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel in Judah and Benjamin, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives. Return every man to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and did not go against Jeroboam. Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem, and he built cities for defense in Judah. He built Bethlehem, Etam, Tekoa, Bethzur, Soko, Adullam, Gath, Marisha, Ziph, Adorim, Lachish, Azekah, Zorah, Aijalon, and Hebron, fortified cities that are in Judah and in Benjamin. He made the fortresses strong and put commanders in them and stores of food, oil, and wine. And he put shields and spears in all the cities and made them very strong. So he held Judah and Benjamin. And the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel presented themselves to him from all places where they lived. For the Levites left their common lands and their holdings and came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. And he appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat idols and for the calves that he had made. And those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel came after them from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah, and for three years they made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, secure, for they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon." Rehoboam took as wife Mahalath, the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David, and of Abihel, the daughter of Eliab, the son of Jesse. And she bore him sons, Jeush, Shemariah, and Zaham. After her, he took Maacah, the daughter of Absalom, who bore him Abijah, Atai, Ziza, and Shelemoth. Rehoboam loved Maacah, the daughter of Absalom, above all his wives and concubines, he took 18 wives and 60 concubines and fathered 28 sons and 60 daughters. And Rehoboam appointed Abijah, the son of Maacah, as chief prince among his brothers, for he intended to make him king. And he dealt wisely and distributed some of his sons through all the districts of Judah and Benjamin in all the fortified cities, and he gave them abundant provisions and procured wives for them." So far, the reading of God's Word in our text. 
In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing from Psalm 105, stanzas 1, 9, and 10, where we thank God for delivering His people and providing those blessings that we will see are described here in our text. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever had a time in your life where you experience everything going sideways, where nothing has worked out that the way that you thought it would, where no matter how hard you try, you, you just you can't make your hopes and your dreams and your plans come true. Everything is just collapsing. And when you come around to think about why that might be in a moment of being brutally honest with yourself, and God opens your eyes in that moment because it takes God's work, and you see with clarity that beneath your failures and beneath your unhappiness lies something very specific. It lies your personal sin. You can see it clear as a bell. You've been living a sinful life. You've been fighting God all that time with a lifestyle of disobedience to His commands, His will. You've been trying to do things your way, not the Lord's way, and everything's falling apart. You ever have a time like that? And right there at your bottom, the bottom of your pit, knowing that you are the cause of your own misery, you feel totally without hope. Well, brothers and sisters, Chronicles, two books together, they are really a book of hope. They are books which stress again and again that no matter how stupid we've been, no matter the, the sin we've committed, no matter the hurt we've caused to others or to ourselves, the Lord our God is always at hand to help us out of our own pit and set our feet on a rock, ultimately the rock of Jesus Christ. Our text showcases for us the grace of God towards sinners who do this, who turn back to the Lord. There is grace for all who do that, grace even for a foolish king, King Rehoboam, who begins to understand in our text that the only hope is to do things God's way. So I bring you this word of the Lord. The king turns from sin and is blessed by the Lord. He is blessed in his work, we'll see, and he's blessed in his people, and he's blessed in his family. Well, King Rehoboam, at the age of 41, you recall, that's the age he ascended the throne, he's long been used to doing things his own way, it seems. For the whole debacle at Shechem in chapter 10 didn't seem to fizz on him. 
He doesn't appear to have learned much. You'll recall from chapter 10 that he had rejected the wise advice of the elders who had served his wise father Solomon, and he went with the advice of the younger guys, the advice of his friends and peers to go hard on the people, to threaten them with even more work and harder conditions. And when the people revolted from his rule, he sent in Hadoram to forcefully bring them under control, only to see the people stone Hadoram to death. The king himself, we read, at the end of 10, he had to flee for his life. He narrowly escapes with his life as he runs back to Jerusalem. King Rehoboam, he wanted control and he wanted it badly. He was the rightful king of Judah and of the northern tribes of all Israel. He had every right to rule these 12 tribes. How dare they rebel against me? This was his thinking. And so in our text, the first thing that Rehoboam does when he returns to Jerusalem is make preparations to go to war. Assemble the troops, prepare the weapons, bring out the shields and the spears, batten down the hatches. We're going to march north. We're going to show those 10 tribes who's boss. And again, notice in all of this, just like we saw in chapter 10, there's no consultation with the Lord. There's no prayer. There's no humbling himself before God on account of his earlier foolishness. There's no seeking advice from priest or prophet. In Rehoboam's mind, the next step was crystal clear, we fight. We fight to the death for the kingdom. His foolishness cost him his kingdom, and now that same foolishness was going to start a civil war among the covenant people of God. Do you see, brothers and sisters, how our selfish desires, because that's what's going on in Rehoboam's heart, these selfish desires can lead to so much misery and ruin. Rehoboam had not learned much at all. God had made Rehoboam king of his people for this purpose, to serve them for their benefit. That's why God established kingship in general, the much more so over his own people. He was there to serve the people and to benefit the people. But all Rehoboam can see was the power to control the people for his benefit. This sense of control and authority was almost an idol to King Rehoboam. Rehoboam thought that his God-given authority was all about having people respect and honor his wishes and having people treat him as he deserves, when in reality the first purpose of authority is to humbly serve the needs of your people. Don't we see that so, so very clearly in our King Jesus Christ? the great son of David. Think of it. He is son of God from eternity. And though he was anointed king of all creation, he came to live among us as a servant, just humbly, gentle and lowly in spirit. And King Jesus was frequently mistreated, wasn't he? Frequently abused even by 
the very people that he ruled over. But he never used his authority to coerce those people. What did he do when his people didn't listen to him? What did he do when he came down the slope of the Mount of Olives and saw the city of Jerusalem and knew its rebellion and knew they would harden their hearts against him? What did Jesus do? He wept for his people. He's got all the authority in the universe. He wept for his people. He, doesn't, he didn't have long toes. He had a soft heart that was easily broken when his people rebelled. Whenever he did use his authority, it was always to heal and to help, to bless, to build up. And as king of Israel, he, he went the distance and protected his people from their great enemy's sin by laying down his life on the cross. Can we, brothers and sisters, can we imitate that style of authority, of exercising our God-given authority? Can we do that wherever we've got that authority, in the workplace, in our homes, in the church, in the classroom? Jesus Christ not only is our Savior, He's also our model. So Rehoboam, in his pig-headedness, heads north with his 180,000 troops, and he's going to start a civil war, right? Well, what happens? Well, this is what happens. The grace of God confronts him in the form of a prophet, the man Shemaiah. I don't know a lot. We don't know a lot about Shemaiah. But as you read through the books of Chronicles, you will find a number of these lesser-known prophets sort of popping up here and there. Some of are given names. Some are just referred to as simply a man of God or a son of the prophets or the like, anonymously. But each of them is a legitimate agent of the Almighty to bring His Word to kings he sends these prophets to speak truth to power. And here, Shemaiah is just by himself, the lone prophet. He confronts 180,000 troops and the king. And he speaks plainly and he speaks forcefully to king and army, go home. They're bent on war. He says, go home. I quote, you shall not go up or fight against your brothers. That's the literal word for relatives there. They are your brothers. Return every man to his home, for this thing is from me, says the Lord. That's a word of grace, because even though that message went against the will of the king, it was very, the very opposite of what Rehoboam wanted to do. It was a rebuke even to his face that this plan was ill-conceived and, and, and stubborn and wrong. It was exactly what King Rehoboam needed to hear. It was for Rehoboam's good and benefit, thus it's grace to him. Isn't it that way with us too? When we fall into a sinful pattern of thinking or behavior or both, when we're in that zone, the last thing we want, right, is for someone to come and tell us that we're living wrong. For someone to come and tell us to repent, brother, turn back, sister. We don't want that. 
But that's exactly what we need, isn't it? For where does that way of sin lead? Where does going against the will of God end up? It only ends under God's punishment, under God's wrath. And if there's never any repentance, it's eternal wrath. But turning away from sin to obey God, that leads to the blessing of God. So, brothers and sisters, if someone comes to you and they've got a rebuke for you based on Scripture, if someone pulls you aside to confront you about some sin in your life, don't flare up in anger. Don't get your back up in defensiveness, but listen. Listen again. Humble yourself and do what Rehoboam did and turn from your evil way. For that is the surprise here. The remarkable thing in verse 4, so the army and king, so they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and did not go against Jeroboam. Notice that verb return. It occurs twice in verse 4. And it's the same verb found earlier, 2 Chronicles 7, which we read, where the Lord, envisioning a time, a future time when the people would rebel against His commands, and the Lord says that despite their wickedness, I'm not going to walk away. I'm not going to abandon them. Oh, I will correct them. I will send certain punishments upon them so that they will learn to respect my ways. But the Lord will patiently call out to them and, and look for their repentance. And then the Lord says, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 13, when they repent, I will restore and bless Here's what he says. When I shut up the heavens, and that's in response to their rebellion, so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name, if they, here it comes, humble themselves, if they pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. If my people turn, that's the key verb there, if they turn from their wicked ways, if they repent, and that's what Rehoboam does together with 180,000. They listen to the rebuke. They listen to the Word of God come, that's come to them, and they turn from their sin. Rehoboam repents of his selfish desire for all control. He now accepts implicitly that this division of the kingdom is from the Lord. It is some kind of a temporary situation. He now leaves up to God to heal in his time and way. He's not going to take up arms against his brothers in the north to force them into submission, as was his plan. No, he goes back home. And he's determined to listen to God's law. It says in chapter, verse 17 that they walked in the way of Solomon and David. And in 12 verse 1, he was walking in accordance with the law of the Lord. This is repentance here. He turns from his wicked way and the Lord forgave him. And the Lord blessed Rehoboam. That's what the chronicler portrays for us in the remainder of the chapter. Essentially, we get here a, a large picture of Rehoboam 
prospering in all areas of life. And the first area that is mentioned is the king's work of building up cities and fortifications for the protection of the people. That's verses 5 through 12. Now, you probably know that one of the main tasks of a king is to defend and protect his citizens. That's what David and Solomon did. They, they developed an army. They laid out uh, defenses in various cities. They built fortifications, all the while trusting in the Lord, not in the fortifications, but the fortifications were a means that the Lord would use to defend the people. In the books of Chronicles, these two kings, David and Solomon, they're held up as models. You'll see that time and again. We have it in verse 17. Uh, the author of, of Chronicles commends the Levites and the priests and the king, for they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. In fact, if you were to read the chronicler's account of King Solomon's reign, you can't find a single mention of a sin. We all know what Solomon's sin was toward the end of his life. He fell into idol worship on account of his many wives. Chronicles, do, Chronicle, Chronicles doesn't mention that at all, not because the author wants to hide it. No, he knows that his readers are familiar with the history from the book of Kings. No, he wants to simply hold up all the good aspects of Solomon's reign. He says, that's the model. Follow Solomon in his good steps. When he was faithful, when his heart was devoted to the Lord, that's the model. And that's the Solomon you see in Chronicles. So we see in verses 5 through 12 that God helps Rehoboam build up a network of 15 cities. And if you were to look at a map, locate these cities on a map of Judah, you would find Jerusalem more or less in the, in the center of these, these 15 cities, which kind of form a U-shape around Jerusalem. You've got Israel to the north, Judah to the south, and then these cities are kind of a U-shape around Jerusalem. There's a line of cities to the, to the west going north-south, protecting advancement of troops from the, from the west. There's a line of cities to the east, fortifications to the east, again, protecting from advancement from that side, from the east. And there's a line from the south going east-west. So, Rehoboam sets out to build these cities under God's blessing. These cities were needed for protection from Gentile nations like the Egyptians from the south, the Philistines from the east, the Moabites from the west, but guess where there are no fortifications? In the north. See, Rehoboam got it. He heard the message through Shemaiah. The northern tribes, they're not my enemy. They're not my enemy. They're my brothers. They are members of the same covenant community. They are brothers and sisters of God's church. And the way from the north to the south has got to stay open for them to come home. They left in rebellion. That was wrong. But the way open needs, the way home needs to remain open. And God through His undeserved kindness, does bring some home. That's the second blessing in verses 13 through 17 that the author highlights. The king is blessed in his people. Starts in verse 13. 
And the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel, they presented themselves to Rehoboam from all the places where they lived. So these would be then the priests and the Levites living in the northern, among the northern tribes. You might recall from the book of Joshua or perhaps Numbers that God divided up the land of Canaan among the twelve tribes, but He never gave a, a territory to the tribe of Levi. They never had their own spot, you could say. Instead, they were given cities all sprinkled all throughout the tribes, north and south, in which they could live, and they were also granted uh, pasture lands around those cities in which they could graze their animals. The special inheritance of the tribe of Levi, and the priests were also of that same tribe, was to care for and look after God's tabernacle and now the temple, attending to the priestly service. That was their big inheritance. That was a better blessing than the land. And as the priests and Levites were, would live all throughout, sprinkled throughout the tribes, they would also teach the people God's law because they were uh, keepers of the law. They, they uh, learned it and they would teach it in their hometown. So they would be like salt and light all throughout the 12 tribes. But you can imagine that with the division of the kingdom into two, these priests and these Levites would feel conflicted. After all, they were called to serve in Jerusalem's temple down there in Rehoboam's kingdom, but now they were citizens of Jeroboam's kingdom in the north. So they would have had this feeling of conflict in them already, and, and very quickly this whole sense of divided loyalties was quickly exasperated by Jeroboam. The fuller story is in 1 Kings 12 and 13, which I hope You've had a chance to read, but you can read it later if you'd like. The chronicler in verse 14 and 15 gives us, you could say, the Cliff's Notes version of that. He says there, verse 14, for the Levites left their common lands and their holdings. They came to Judah and Jerusalem. Here it comes, because Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. And he appointed his own priests, Jeroboam did, for the high places and for the goat idols and for the calves that he had made. What a horrible thing Jeroboam had done. Jeroboam went right back to one of the earlier sins of the Israelites at Mount Sinai. You remember when they made a golden calf in the days of Aaron? And you might recall how angry the Lord was at that time. He was angry enough to destroy the whole nation. That's what He wanted to do, but Moses interceded and the Lord relented. Now, Jeroboam doesn't make one golden calf. He makes two golden calves. He puts one in the north of his kingdom, one in the, at the southern border, so that his people would, would never need to go to Jerusalem and never have to give their loyalties back to Rehoboam. It was, it was a totally political move very much like Rehoboam's coronation ceremony at Shechem, seeking to placate the people while giving no thought to seeking the Lord and the Lord's blessing. Similarly, Jeroboam seeks to placate his citizens. He's not interested in the way of the Lord at all. He goes against the way of the Lord. In fact, he's even conspiring to keep his very people 
away from the Lord's blessing. And you can read in the book of Kings how Jeroboam's disobedience became not only his downfall, but that of all Israel who followed after him. Only, thank God, not all Israel followed after Jeroboam. That's what's going on in verse 13 and verse 16, and here we see God at work again. God at work preserving faith even among the rebellion nor- rebellious northern peoples, and He brings blessing to this recently repentant Rehoboam by sending to Rehoboam more people who are both loyal to God and loyal to the house of David. If you were King Rehoboam, that would be a bonus, right? That would bolster your kingdom. You would feel like you were getting stronger. People are coming to you. Think about the the irony of that, the the beautiful irony and the lesson in that. I mean, Rehoboam had once thought he had to force the northern people to submit to his authority. But as Rehoboam listens to the Word of God and humbles himself and follows the Lord's way and begins to serve the needs of his own people in the south by building those cities, guess what happens? The northern people see, and the northern people come, and the northern people submit willingly to King Rehoboam. You see, godly authority never forces submission. It attracts submission. And Rehoboam's kingdom grows in numbers. Most importantly, it grows in its loyalty, its dedication to the Lord. And it's not just the priests and the Levites who have been, become recently unemployed. They can't serve in the north, and they, they come down to the south. But it's not just them. Verse 16 broadens out the picture, and those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, came after them, after the priests and Levites, from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord their God, the God of their fathers. Isn't that so encouraging? King Jeroboam had set up worship centers in the north He commanded his people to worship at those calf idols and not to go to Jerusalem. But then in defiance of this wicked king and his wicked edict and in obedience to the Lord their God who called his people to worship in Jerusalem, the faithful Israelites, they traveled south just like they always used to do. They wanted to go to church. They wanted to be in the temple as they were called to be. The people who came south, says verse 16, They set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel. They set their hearts to seek Him. You know, that's one of the most precious things anybody could say about a child of God, about a covenant child. That person has got his or her heart set on seeking the Lord. Do people say that about you? That's the kind of people God wants, right? The Lord Jesus said it, John 4, 
He wants a people that worships him in spirit and in truth. Well, that's another way of saying people who set their hearts on seeking the Lord. It's also the kind of people that God spoke about in chapter 7, which we read, verse 14. If my people humble myself, uh, themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear and forgive and heal. How are we doing with that? Do you and I, do we seek the face of God with all of our hearts? Remember the summary of the law the Lord Jesus gave? That we love Him with all of our hearts? Is it obvious to people around us that, that we are so focused on that? Is it obvious to the Lord? Above all else, is it obvious to Him who sees and knows our, our every move? who understands and, and reads our thoughts, knows what we do in secret, is it obvious to the Lord that we are seeking Him with all of our heart? The Levites and the priests and maybe some of the rest of the people, they were willing to uproot themselves and leave behind homes and fields, houses, pasture lands in order to, to be where God wanted them to be, to worship God rightly. They sacrificed a lot to be obedient to the Lord. Would we do that? Do we do that? How much hasn't God sacrificed for you and for me when He sent His only begotten Son to die? that horrific death on the cross so that you and I might have life with Him evermore. I mean, let's set our hearts on seeking God today and every day, and then we can expect God's blessings to follow in all of life, even in our own family, as Rehoboam experienced. For that is the third blessing mentioned in the chapter, verses 18 through 23. It's the gift to Rehoboam of many children. Just as we sang from Psalm 112, children are a blessing from God. We know that from Genesis 1, uh, the command to be fruitful and multiply. We hear that in the Psalms, well, Psalm 127. Children are a blessing. Children are a heritage from God. In Deuteronomy 28, which we read, the list of blessings describes a people that is thriving in every possible way, that's prosperous. God's people there receive large crops, the birth of many animals, the growth of wealth. They live in peace and safety in the land. They have no fear of enemies. They know rest and peace. And then in that whole list, God's in, God includes children. He mentions it twice. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb. So covenant blessings come also in the form of birth of children. And so we read in our text that Rehoboam fathered 28 sons and 60 daughters. That's the chronicler's way of saying God was blessing the king. The king had turned from his evil way, and in these three Manners, God blesses Rehoboam. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and tackle a question that maybe some of you have. I think there's 
multiple questions that arise from the, this, these verses 18 through 23, but maybe the most quest, uh, pressing question is about the matter of having multiple wives and concubines. It's presented here as a kind of matter of course that the king of Israel would have many wives, and it sits very uncomfortable, doesn't it, in our 21st century Western hearts that the king of God's people has 18 wives and who knows how many concubines. I think especially the sisters might struggle with this, although we probably all do to some degree, and might wonder, is God okay with polygamy? It's just presented here as a good thing somehow. Is God okay with polygamy? Multiple wives. Does the Lord approve of a royal harem, of having concubines in addition to multiple wives? I mean, David had them too. So did Solomon. Famously, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And, and we're supposed to look up to these men as models? How does that work? It seems like women are treated by men as mere objects of desire with the goal of the king having as many kids as he can. Is our heavenly Father on board with the way that women appear to be treated? And if He's not on board, then why does God allow Rehoboam to have so many children? In other parts of Scripture, we read of God closing the womb. Why wouldn't He do that here if He was truly displeased? Well, brothers and sisters, we, we, have to take, we have to pay attention to the time in which Rehoboam lived. The basic answer to all these questions is no, God is not okay. God is not okay with a man taking more than one wife. God is not okay with a, any man treating any woman with, as some sort of object of desire to possess, let alone for a man to do that to his wife. We know this is not God's will. How do we know? We know it from Genesis 1, how God created mankind, male and female. He created them as equals before Him, both created in His image, both precious to Him. Certainly, God assigned different roles to husband and wife. But that does not change their equal standing and preciousness in the sight of God. The husband is to love and serve his wife as head in the same manner that Christ loves and serves his bride, the church, as her head. And the wife is to help her husband with the tasks God assigned to mankind in submission to her head, her husband, just as the church helps Christ with the tasks God assigned to Him in submission to the Lord Jesus, her head. And we know how the Lord Jesus treated the church and still treats the church. Sacrificial love, that's the, that's the first note of His headship, isn't it? And the Lord Jesus, while He was in His earthly ministry on the earth, took time and effort to treat women with respect and with honor. If you think of all the interactions he had with women, he never objectified a woman. He never mistreated them. In fact, according to the standards of the culture of his day, he always treated them very well. He treated them with honor. He treated them with respect. 
He saw each of those women as a daughter of God, as a sister in the family of God. Now, what I just described, all, the, all of that, these are the norms. These are the, the way it was at creation, and these are also the norms of the work of Christ at redemption. But we have to understand and remember that Rehoboam and Israel, they lived in between those two events, those two things. They live in a time after the fall into sin. What happened after the fall into sin? Corruption spread like wildfire throughout all the world and all of the human race. Think of how evil the human race became so that in the days of Noah, God had to wipe it out with a flood. I mean, that, that level of wickedness is mind-blowing. And the Israelites and Rehoboam, they, they lived during the time of the, the promise of a Savior, but the Savior has not yet arrived. So it's, they're in that in-between period. And in that in-between period, the power of sin was very, very powerful over all the earth and in the human race. Darkness was over all the Gentile lands. Remember, it was only Israel who knew God's will. The Gentiles knew nothing of it. They had rebelled against God. They had gone their own way. It was spiritually dark outside of Israel. So they were doing whatever they wanted to do in their sinful hearts. And they did a lot of wickedness. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. But even among the Israelites, think of their tendency to show a hardness of heart toward God. Think of how the Lord Jesus answered the Pharisees' question about why God, through Moses, gave a law of divorce when Jesus was busy saying that, as a rule, there should be no divorce. Well, then why not? Why did God give such a law? Why did Moses give us a law, they said? And Jesus answered, because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. And then he adds, but from the beginning, it was not so. That's the key, beloved. From the beginning, from creation, that was not God's intention. Jesus came to start the process of restoring God's people so that they would again act according to the norms of that original design at creation. But in Rehoboam's day and Solomon's day and David's day, they were not that far yet in the course of history. The Holy Spirit had not been poured out yet. So God in His forbearance, you could say, He put up with that hardness of heart much more than He would after Pentecost. And in His long-suffering patience, while God re revealed His will in, in His law to Israel, God made certain, you could say, allowances for that hardness of heart as He prepared His people for that fuller salvation to come. You can think for, of a different example. Think of slavery. In the laws of Moses, you can find a, a number of laws pertaining to slavery. We might ask, well, is God in favor of slavery? And if you think about Genesis 1, you can quickly understand that it was never God's will that one human should enslave another. But in the corruption of sin, this evil and injustice 
came about in the human race, and it became so widespread and so dominant that God, in the days of Moses, chose to regulate it and bring some measure of equity and justice to it. And then, in the days of the New Testament era, we hear Paul write about, if you can gain your freedom, do so. And now, as New Testament Christians, we resist slavery. We know through the Spirit and through the Word that's not God's will for anybody. And God did the same with polygamy. In the laws of Moses, you can find God, you could say, restraining the evils of the, the predominant culture by giving a measure of equity to women in those times. Compared to the surrounding cultures of the Gentiles, the women in Israel had a much improved lot. But even this much improved lot, we have to admit that from the beginning it was not so. Once we get to the New Testament, to the coming of Christ, then the saving work of Jesus, it goes further. The grip of sin is loosened and the demands for righteous living increase across the board. They come to resemble what was at the beginning. So as God's people are filled with the Spirit of Christ and the knowledge of God's will increases among the people of God, we now know that every woman is precious in God's sight. She is to be treated with honor and respect. We know that marriage is only between one man and one woman. Paul emphasizes that in 1 Timothy 3. Elders must only have one wife. Same with deacons. We know that headship means being the first to serve and to sacrifice for my wife and never to domineer and to use we know that helper means first looking to assist my husband in fulfilling the mandate God gave at creation. So are you upset when you read about multiple wives and concubines? You should be, because it's not the will of God. But understand, God has moved us further than that. And we are in a situation where we can acknowledge that, and God's people have higher standards. We are going back to the way it was at the beginning. And at the beginning, God commanded children. And all through the Scriptures, children are held out as a blessing from the Lord. And that's the main thrust of our text of the last portion of our text, and really the whole chapter 11, God is saying, I love to bless obedience. Come on, obey me. I'm eager to hand out my blessings. You know, for the Israelites living in the chronicler's day after the exile in their very small and pitiful condition, they were wondering sometimes if God would ever come with His blessing if his earlier promises would ever be fulfilled. But here in this passage, the message is plain. Look, if you wholeheartedly seek the Lord, that's key, right? If you give your heart to seeking the Lord, if you turn from evil and obey his commandments, blessings from above, they will flow. Not that trials are eliminated. Not that hardships are entirely avoided. The book of Chronicles will show us these things too, even for obedient Israelites. But still, we have to get the message clear. God promises obedience for blessings. Obedience for blessings. Blessings not earned. 
whoever earned a blessing, but blessings granted by grace, a grace that was obtained for us by our better and greater King, Jesus Christ. Amen.